0: Hello and welcome to the Irish Times Inside Politics podcast. I'm Hugh Linehan. This one is a bit unusual because on Wednesday evening I was joined by Mary Minahan, Jennifer O'Connell, Fintan O'Toole, Pat Leahy and Jennifer Bray for a discussion in front of a live audience of Irish Times subscribers in Trinity College Dublin. We discussed what we had learned and what we had seen over the course of this general election campaign from the different perspectives of political reporter, news editor, features writer and columnist. I have to say I found it an enlightening and Sometimes very entertaining evening and I hope that you enjoyed this edited version. I started by asking Mary Minahan, looking at the campaign from the Irish Times news desk, what her overall impression was.
1: There was a terrible lead-in to this campaign really for the outgoing government. There was Dara Murphy, there was Maria Bailey and Swingate and then once the campaign got underway there were unusual things that nobody could have predicted like that her unfortunate homeless man in a tent who was pretty much scooped up uh, during a canal clean-up. Uh, Catherine Noon calling her own leader autistic and managing to insult families all over the country whose children actually feel too much, never mind feeling too little. And uh, just observing the negative tone of the campaign in particular coming from the outgoing government and the adoption of words like backwards men to describe uh, huge cohorts of voters in Fianna Fáil, and just the general inability of Fine Gael to pivot and be flexible as the campaign changed and to continue on. They had a plan, they were forging ahead, Brexit was their big plank and they weren't going to deviate from that at all. In fact they were going to deliver scripted insults. Uh, Very surprising to hear a gentleman like Simon Coveney speak about Micheál Martin in such a derogatory way and say that he knew him better than most and he wasn't the person he wanted to see uh, leading Ireland through the second phase of Brexit. So those were my initial observations of, uh, of how the outgoing government has mishandled the campaign.
0: And Jen, your job is to just go out and see these things happen and to go to the manifesto launches. I always wonder, I have never been to a manifesto launch in my life, is it as boring as it looks? Yeah, um, it,
2: it is. <laughs> I'm not going to lie to you, it's
0: pretty uh, boring. What, what, is, what, apart from the contents of the manifesto <coughs> themselves, and we know that some of those have not been that <coughs> impressive, but the events themselves, what, if anything, do they tell you about the state of a party, like, for example, Fine Gael, as, as Mary just described it?
2: Yeah, I mean, obviously the whole point of those events and policy launches is to outline exactly that, a, a party's policy. But you, you can get an idea for how organised a party is or how disorganised they are. And I think if I give you a, a one example we'll be Fianna Fáil they got a lot of criticism and they've had a lot of criticism over the last few months about their housing policies. So one thing that they were criticised over was, you know, rent freezes. Before Christmas, Michal Martin called for a rent freeze. Next of all, they have legal advice which says it's unconstitutional. So there was kind of criticism that they weren't fully prepared and that they didn't really know what they wanted to do in terms of housing. So when we go along then to uh, their housing uh, policy launch and, and their housing spokesman, Dara O'Brien, is there and you go in and, and they say, well, we'll hand you your housing policy now and you can have a look through it and then you can question us on on the different parts. And you're looking around for it and you're looking under the table and there's no sign of it. And um, afterwards, there's no sign of it. And. <laughs> You know, it just shows you how disorganised they are and it lends itself to that idea that Fine Gael have been putting out that Fianna Fáil don't have any policies. So you, you can get an idea for it, but you can also, and I do think one point is, is important to say that smaller parties like the Sockdams or People Before Profit, they don't have the party machinery behind them for the big launches or for the for the the glossy manifestos so you do have to make a little bit of leeway for that and to give not that you give them an easier ride but just that so you understand they don't have that, that machinery behind them but then if you take for example the the Fine Gael manifesto launch and the Fianna Fáil manifesto launch are two hours uh, apart from each other and the Fianna Fáil one um, was actually quite like this room uh, it was a theatre launch, and it was like being at a school play. kind of had Michal Martin in the middle, with a big spotlight on him, and then other people, all his kind of, his favourite front benchers, and then the B team over in the corner. Um, and it was all about Hall. It was the Hall show. So two hours later, you go across town to to the Fine Gael manifesto launch, and you have Leo and his favourite ministers, his Brexit halftime team that we hear so much about, and then his least favourite ministers sitting here in the front looking at him. Um, so you get an idea of kind of where they see themselves. So, so for of it's the Hall show. And for Fine Gael, it's the brexit team so you you can pick up on optics and you can pick up on how prepared they are I suppose so it, it is it is interesting um in that way, but you know some some of us might be bored by some of the policies
0: Pat, how much of those optics matter? I have a kind of feeling in my head that may be completely wrong and tell me if I'm wrong, that actually what happens over the course of a campaign like, like this is largely fated. That there are, there, you have a party who, which has been in power for nearly 10 years, longer than it ever was before in the history of the state, uh, made a dog's dinner of its last election in 2016 um, has perhaps been slightly more slick and professional under under new management this time. But it was inevitable that the, the mood of the country would swing and would look for an alternative. And even if that alternative was not setting the world on fire, as Jen seems to be suggesting about Fianna Fáil, it would find that alternative somewhere. Uh, yes and no. So I, I, I think history shows
3: us that... Uh, For a government to, for a party to ask for a third term in government is a very big ask from the voters. It is rarely done, but it has been done within living memory. And the 2007 election, which was the last time it was done, which people will recall that Bertie Hearn won his third term, was in some respects was kind of a model that Fine Gael were adopting for their strategy for this. For this general election, they expected to be behind at the start. They expected to have a difficult first two weeks. And that's why, when that difficult first two weeks manifested itself, there wasn't really any panic in Fine Gael. There was simply an expectation that this is what they had budgeted for, so to speak, and that things would come right in the last two weeks. But of course, they haven't. And some of us were wondering, why are they persisting with a strategy that is so clearly not working? And while it is a better campaign than that fought, the chaotic one fought by Fine Gael in 2016, it's also important to remember that in these things, a bad strategy that is well executed is actually worse than a bad strategy that is inexpertly uh, executed. And to some extent, uh, I think that's what we've seen. But I'm not sure the extent to which everything is is preordained. Because in campaigns, campaigns are are, are dynamic. Events matter. At the start of this week, um, and as judged by the numbers in our poll, Sinn Féin were on a wave. Now, people on the campaign trail were knocking on doors or looking at canvas returns, had been telling us this since the, since the start of the campaign. The poll confirmed it. But now the campaign has, if not, if not, if not quite been turned on its head by the controversy over the Paul Quinn uh, uh, murder, it has certainly taken a sharp turn in the final days. And to go back again to that, the example of 2007 when Bertie Ahern won his third term. That only came about in the last week of that campaign when Brian Cowan kind of elbowed his way into the middle of the election debate, more or less took it by the scruff of the neck. And I don't know, were you there, um, uh, Mary? Perhaps you're too young, uh, but I was there for the... Um, such I, such I, a gentleman. I, I was there. <laughs> Plenty more where that came from. Um, LAUGHTER uh, I, I was there at the, the, that press conference when Cowan, I was going to say literally, metaphorically took the campaign by the scruff uh, of the neck. Like, so campaigns matter. They change outcomes in unpredictable ways. And in one respect, that's one of the reasons why, you know, it, this is such a fascinating few days to see ultimately how that late turn plays in the campaign. Because an awful lot of those voters that Sinn Féin has attracted... Are new voters, so how are they going to react to this, um, uh, I think will be really interesting to observe.
0: And we'll be looking for Pat's prediction of all 160 seats and the outcomes before... before Which will be delivered in
3: this TV. room at ten past three this morning. <laughs> <so>.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Jennifer, you are our real person correspondent. Uh, unlike the rest of us you're not in the bubble you're out and about, you've been to Clare, Waterford and Cork and Dublin and where else?
4: I have Um, been to, so I had a brief at at the very beginning of the election as soon as it was announced uh, I was told you are going to be covering the the election and the only instruction is don't talk to any politicians and ideally don't even mention any politicians in your pieces so I was my brief was to get out and about and find out what people were talking about so I started in Waterford, I got a a bus across West Waterford, Um, I went to a gym I went to a book club in Simon Coveney and mehol Martin's constituency in Cork I went to a Martin Ennis um, a men's shed in Rams Grange Verona Murphy country um, a mum and baby or a parent and baby swimming group in Dunleary uh, I spent a day in Adamstown and I, I think that was only Monday. Wow. <laughs> um, and this week I've been in uh, with students in NCAD. Um, so I've been all over and I've, I've been talking to people. And the C word came up like really quickly, really decisively uh, from the very beginning. Um, you know, from those very first kind of interviews that I did in, in West Waterford, people started talking about we want change. We want to change a government. I would go up to people and I'd ask them what are the issues that are likely to get you out um, and vote in this election and then I'd nearly have to pull up a couch because there'd be quite a long, long, long list of things that they would um, starting with health and and housing and sometimes the pension issue um, and would culminate in me saying well it sounds like you're possibly thinking about voting for change of government and then there'd be a pause and it became really clear after that pause that there wasn't any consensus in the beginning like there is now about what change meant um, so, you know, I'd have the farmer in Ennis saying, yeah, no, it's time for change because, um, you know, we've had Fianna Fáil and Finegale since the inception of the state and they've run the country into the ground, so I want change. And that would mean an independent. Somebody in the men's shed in Rams Grange talking about change is probably talking about voting for Verona Murphy. Um, you know, the... the Book club in Neil Martin and Simon Coveney's constituency. Some of the women there, they they liked their local candidates a lot, but they for them change meant voting green. So in the early days of the campaign, it was really clear that there was an appetite for change, but it wasn't necessarily clear how that was going to translate into into voting intentions. And the really strange thing, I think, from my perspective, was that the polls were saying, you know, that that very clearly the momentum was behind Sinn Fein from kind of I think a week in. But I didn't really see that play out amongst the people that I was meeting and that I was talking to until, I think, last Friday. And I got on a bus at 7 o'clock in the morning in Cork that was bound for Belfast, and it was a bus load of people who were going to have their cataracts removed um, because it, it, they could get it done in basically 10 days in, if they went to Belfast on a bus versus a four-year waiting list here in the Republic. Uh, so they were obviously in, in, in not well disposed towards the government. But it was only then that people started saying on that bus... Uh, I've been voting Labour all my life. I've always voted Labour. I'm going to vote Sinn Féin. Or I've been a Fianna Fáil voter all my life. All my family have been Fianna Fáil voters. I'm going to vote Sinn Féin. And I, it kind of led me to wonder maybe if the polls have been a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy, you know, to the extent that, um, or maybe giving people permission to to think about an alternative that they hadn't thought about before. And since then, um, every, every interview that I've done, everybody that I've spoken to since then, Sinn Féin comes up really quickly. So it's really interesting. You know, it's kind of a chicken and egg thing. Where I don't, I'm, I'm not sure still which came first. The appetite for change came first.
0: Well, it's very useful we have you here then, Fintan, because only this week. I mean, you, are you one of the people uh, who was given permission by the polls to, uh, uh, to think <laughs> in, a more, in a more positive fashion about Sinn Féin's contribution to Irish politics than you have
5: heretofore? No, because if you remember, we had a conversation on the podcast at the very beginning of the campaign when I was saying these things. And so I've been thinking this a long time. I mean, I, I've been thinking about maybe very selfishly, but I'm thinking about myself and and hypocrisy. Right. So um, I, I've been attacking Sinn Féin since before most of you were born. You know, I mean, I've, you know, I started writing this column in 1988 at the height of the Troubles, you know, and and, uh, you know, consistently since then Um I've I've been a very strong critic of the IRA and and, and of Sinn Fein for its support for the IRA. What was I saying all those years? What I'm was saying was, you should be pursuing your objectives by peaceful, democratic means. You know, and that raises a question: wh- when they're doing that, at what point do you say, "Well, that's legitimate now"? You know, not not I'm not a Sinn Fein supporter. Uh, I'm not urging people to vote for Sinn Féin. I'm simply saying that at a certain point, maybe after 22 years after the Belfast Agreement, you might get to a point where if, if we were telling them to do this, then we have to accept the legitimacy of them doing so as part of our political system. And the other thing I just feel a hypocrite about is the last two or three years, I've been consistently saying, um, Sinn Féin has a duty to be in government in Northern Ireland. They have a duty to use the, the, the seats they have at Westminster to try to affect the Brexit thing that's gone now. But over those years, I've been saying that. Um, you can't keep saying to them, you know, get stuck in, be part of government, take responsibility for decision making, grow up, and then say, but oh, that stops, that stops at the border. You know, you're not allowed to do that in Dublin.
0: Mary, I'd like to ask you about Chin Feng because I think you have a particular perspective on coming from Derry. Yeah. Um, you were saying to me earlier on that you remember. Doorstepping or interviewing Martin McGuinness like two decades ago? Yeah,
1: I actually, I checked the Irish Times archive actually to, to work out if it really was that long ago and it was. Um, this cub reporter, Mary Minahan, doorstepped uh, Martin McGuinness who was a relatively new Minister for Education at the time and I had come from, my, my parents would have been teachers, you know, and you can imagine the shock of the new. Who was coming to look at the schools now? It was Martin McGuinness, you know. Mm. It was just a, an incredible change. And I remember, I can remember stopping with him in a, in a doorway and sort of nervously saying, Mr. McGuinness, you know, I'm from the Irish Times. And, you know, he said, how's oh, the Irish Times? <laughs> I thought, oh, you know, you're you're sort of disarmingly charming. But I, I remember asking him the, the big issue of the time, believe it or not, was whether or not the 11 plus would be scrapped in Northern Ireland. And I just looked back at my report there. The Norse Minister for Education, Mr. Martin McGuinness, yesterday announced the establishment of an independent, independent review body to decide if the 11 plus examination should be scrapped. I highlight that to show how quickly people can assimilate into government and I think you know if you're looking at the Sinn Féin manifesto now it's an unashamedly socialist manifesto which is interesting because I think if you look at their budgetary proposals in the last few years they've been inching slowly towards the centre and this time the party just hauled it back and offered something You might want to call it old-fashioned, if that's a judgment, you know, on socialism. But I think people are mature enough and reflective enough and observant enough to look north and see that Sinn Féin has has played a very substantial role in government there. And a bonus for the party, of course, is that Stormont is up and running again. I think that has taken away a huge plank of their opponent's uh, attack, what they plan to attack them on. But, you know, the north hasn't transformed into some kind of socialist paradise with Sinn Féin in power, you know, I don't see any Cuban-style health service in operation up there, very, very far from it. So, you know, people understand, people have grown up with coalitions and all the compromises that coalitions entail, and they know that a manifesto, uh, that the Sinn Féin manifesto is coming in for a fair bit of bashing now with their tax proposals and so on, but people understand that things are finessed and watered down, that's the nature of coalitions, that's how they work.
0: And just also, um, you hear a lot from people in the north on both sides of the divide, they get pretty pissed off about this thing of us down here telling them that they have to have Sinn Féin in government <laughs> and then saying, well, it's but it's not good enough for us. We deserve better.
1: Yeah, I, I do think that probably is valid. Although people understand, you know, there's been a peace process and there is a reason why the two former enemies, uh, maybe still sometimes still enemies, have to govern together up north, you know. And obviously the big issue now, as has been referenced, uh, is the... the awful, awful atrocity that was the murder of Paul Quinn 13 years ago. And uh, I suppose Mary Lou MacDonald's prevarication on her party's opinion of the Special Criminal Court and what should happen to that. It took her an awful long time in the debate last night to get around to saying that she wanted a review of the court and that the manifesto wasn't looking for abolition. But I'm not convinced that those two issues are coming up on the doorsteps uh, where Sinn Féin um, people are knocking. I'm just not convinced that is happening, and I think the you cannot underestimate the change of leader at the top of that party. I think that has been an absolutely fundamental. Uh, it's it's just massive, you know. And haven't spoken. Let's be honest.
0: Gerry Adams was a disaster. In things like leaders' debates and speaking to the, the, the needs and the wants of people in the Republic.
1: Yeah, and he was a block, I think, to the party's progress, although very popular within the party, obviously. But, um, you know, certainly from talking to backbench Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael TDs in the past, they would have, you know, when you would have just shooting the breeze about coalition options for the future, they would have always just said, not with him there, not with him there. And he's gone now. And, I think any objective observer would have to say Mary Lou Macdonald has had a a good campaign after a a very poor last six months, but uh, a very good campaign. And if I can use the word, that probably sounds a bit odd for an anti-monarchist party, but a very almost regal campaign where she has Mm. elevated herself above the fray and allowed uh, Micheál Martin and Leo Fragher to kind of bicker it out.
0: Jen, I do wonder how surprised Sinn Féin are. By their rise in the polls over the last mm. uh, few weeks and whether Mary refers to the kind of the, you know, the return to a more probably more mm. socialist you know, uh, party manifesto than might have been expected a, a couple of years ago, whether that was, that was a defensive move as they did as well with the constituencies they, re- they withdrew certain candidates because they didn't expect to be so strong, mm. so they they're fighting, um, they're fighting a, a party campaign based upon a defensive strategy. Whereas, in fact, it should be probably the other way around.
2: Yeah, indeed. And, and they are surprised. Uh, um, a lot of them are reluctant to say that out loud. Um, but, but they are. And the sense I get from talking to uh, a lot of the outgoing TDs is that they do regret um, the decision to only run 42 candidates. Because what that means, obviously, you need a, mid, a majority is in, in the next all will be 80. So, you know, you're not in with a shout of even being anywhere near that. Um, and I think the fact that they only ran 42 candidates is reflective of the, the how they thought they'd do and the vote share that they would get. And from digging around a little bit, it seems to me that it, last May, and only a couple of months ago, they had a really bad local election. They lost half their council seats. And what they did afterwards was they sat down and they took a hard look, not only at what went wrong, but also what they did right. And they figured that the best thing for them to do would be to focus on solutions, solutions to the crisis and health, housing and childcare and to put out what their solutions would be in a more coherent manner in leaders' questions and in the dull. And they did that over the, over the those months. Then came the uh, by-elections and they had uh, success with Mark Ward. And that was kind of a validation of their more positive message because then they could look at that and go, this is working. Um, um, and then, of course, I don't think anybody really was expecting the election quite so early. A lot of people were kind of banking on spring. So when it came to this, then I think they thought they were going in the right direction. Um, And they got so far and the start of the campaign and then obviously the first poll. Now, at this point is when they say the TV debates were absolutely pivotal. Um, Mary Lou MacDonald was a standard performer, I think, in the first two. And that brought a lot of people along as well. It's really interesting to hear your theory about which came first, you know. And I think it all kind of feeds into each other. So I think the kind of attribute Sinn Féin's rise or apparent rise in, in in popularity um we'll see we'll see at the weekend um to, to attribute it to one thing is reductive and actually uh if you should take the situation in the round uh, and look at the the party leader their change in tactic um and uh yeah th- those those elements basically
0: i mean I'd, I'd accept that all those are factors but pat what do you think of uh jennifer's you know, suggesting that the polls themselves become self fulfilling to some extent, in that they give people permission to say things that they mightn't have wanted previously. Do polls, can polls drive campaigns like that? Yeah, they, sure, sure they can
3: to uh, to a certain degree, and I think we've seen uh, that effect to a certain degree with Sinn Fein in this uh, in this election, because what they have done is reach into parts of the electorate that were previously for a variety of reasons, some of which have been mentioned earlier on and some of which were kind of personified by uh, by Jerry Adams. Um, uh, they, they've reached into areas of the electorate that were previ- previously off-limits, to them and you know we've done uh, aside from the quantitative research of the of the opinion polls we did people may have read in last Saturday's paper we did a series of focus groups in Dublin and Mullingar to try and you know just kind of color in the picture that is delineated by the quantitative research of the uh, of, of the opinion polls and you know that sense of people Stepping towards Sinn Fein that were previously wouldn 't necessar- wouldn 't really have considered them was evident throughout them interestingly, also there was that reluctance to actually make the jump or that fear of the change and you know to talk about the overarching narrative of the of the campaign being one of change to my mind, actually the dynamic of it is of you know, swing voters or voters whose preferences are available and that, you know, is a subset of all voters, uh, obviously, but an increasingly large subset of all voters because one of the, you know, one of the principal... Effects of you know the Great Recession and its effect on Irish politics, I think, has been a realignment of voters, and it's a long winded way of saying that there is more votes available at the start of every campaign now, and a lot of those votes are having a lot of those voters are almost having an internal discussion with themselves on the Sinn Féin question in those cohorts that have been previously shut off. To them a lot of them in uh, in in uh, amongst middle class uh, middle class voters. So um, I've completely forgotten actually what your question is now, but a few interesting me, bios. Me too. Poll, do poll, do, yeah. polls, drive, do yeah. polls drive changes? They, they, um, yeah, I think, I think that point that, that it has people have allowed them, you know, the polls have given a certain validation for them. And so you will see, you know, the Americans in, in campaigns call it the big mo, momentum. And it's a priceless, uh, it's a priceless advantage to have in a general election
0: campaign because people like to be associated with a winner. Um, I want to talk about policies in a minute because I think policies do matter and policies do matter in elections. But I just want to dig in a tiny bit more with you, Jennifer, into that change thing. We had uh, Fiat Kelly interviewing Leo Varadkar on the podcast yesterday and he uh, made the proposition, the very pejorative proposition of comparing the move, the desire for change as expressed by the surge in the Sinn Féin vote to the popularity of Brexit and the popularity of Trump. Change for change's sake is not always a good thing, I think is some version of what he said. But within that, there's a kernel of truth, isn't there? There's a people get sick of stuff. There's a sort of, there's an ennui there as well, as, as well as a, a conscious desire to see different policies in housing and health or whatever else. Yeah, I think
4: I, I, think, I think Jen is so right that there's a lot going on in the Sinn Féin surge and it's it's not one or two or, or three or even four things probably. But one of the things that I've observed with the younger voters that I've been talking to and this morning I spent a few hours in NCAD talking to, to students there is that uh, they are absolutely rejecting the state. Quo and the binary choice, and that's not just younger voters. I've had you know men in the in the Martin Ennis saying the same thing to me that they they really um, they're sick of this kind of finnegale finnifall landscape, and nobody else gets a look in. So there is that uh, that desire to reject the binary choice and and to look at it in a new way. But I think what I picked up on t- in the conversations that I had this morning with the the students in NCAD was that they actually they want to reject that binary choice. They also want to reject almost the entire political landscape that they've inherited from their parents. And I think that the things like the repeal um, referendum and the marriage equality referendum have shown them that that's possible, that you can take the world order and you can shake things up and you can look at things and you can recreate it in your own image. Um, and so, you know, there were some very interesting conversations there. Aren't all by any means voting Sinn Féin. The people that I spoke to this morning, they're voting for kind of a coalition of the left parties. But they just felt that uh, the the, the landscape and the binary system has nothing to offer them anymore. And so it isn't an outright rejection. There's no no strong dislike of of Leo Varadkar really coming across in the people that that I spoke to. And and in fact, you know, it hasn't been that much about personality at all. It's been really about issues, the conversations that I've been having with people, with one exception. And that exception is that they tend to talk about Mary Lou rather than Sinn Féin. So they'll say, uh, I'm not going to vote Fianna Fáil or Fianna Gael anyway. Might vote Mary Lou though like as if Mary Lou's a party. And that reminds me a little bit of what I would hear from voters in, in the UK. I was in, in Britain before the election there in early December for a couple of weeks um, and it was all personality there. Yeah. And in the beginning here, I was like, well, it's, it's very different here. It's all issues and it's all party. But, but Mary Lou seem, seems to have emerged almost, we you know, without intending to, as this kind of accidental populist choice. It's
0: very ironic that, given that it was Sinn Féin who were criticising the binary debates as being a presidential imposition on a parliamentary system, and Mary Lou's the most, the most presidential candidate in the end of it. One of the things that does strike me about the R-Ipsos-MRBI polls, Finton is that we see something I think we see it more than we've seen in previous Irish elections which is the kind of division uh, based on uh, for example generational change um, and we've seen we've seen that we saw that in the UK election as well a huge division between under 35s and over 55s in particular and I wonder because we know that housing in particular is something that that plays out in a very generational kind of a way is that something that's driving things new things here
5: um Yes, it is. You know, I, I think a few weeks ago, at the start of the election campaign, I wrote a column saying we were the most risk-averse electorate in the democratic world. Um, and I think historically that's true. You know, if, if you look at it, um, we've basically had an, a, an alternation between governments led by w- one of two centre-right parties, you know, for the entire history of the state. <laughs> there's, there's no parallel to that anywhere else, you know, where... where you've effectively got two branches of the same party compete and they lead the government. Um, so our history is of <clears throat> actually not taking risks, you know, and, and uh, we like to think of ourselves, you know, as the Irish are very adventurous, poetic, imaginative people. When it comes to the ballot box, historically, you know, we've actually been incredibly boring and dull. Uh, with the odd... Speak for yourself. ...moment here. Uh, but uh, this is where risk, I think, is... is very interesting, right? Which, as it's playing out now, which is that for people under 40, I think there's an understanding that the calculation of risk in the world has changed. You know, if you're, if you're looking at the catastrophic effects of climate change, uh, if you are living yourself in a world where your position is incredibly risky, you don't have a stake in the society, you don't have a chance of buying a house, you may have a job that's, that's, that's OK, but is extremely insecure. So for, for people, I mean, using under forages is a very kind of crude thing, but you know, for, for, for people of that generation, um, there's no way out of risk. Right? So you, you can't say, if I vote for Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael, everything is going to be OK, and it's all going to be secure and predictable. People know, actually, that the world they're living in is one uh, where, unless things change very radically, then actually that's where the danger lies. If we do nothing, the danger is existential, right? The danger for the species is there, obviously. Um, and I think that's... And yet climate change this.
0: has not been on the top of the agenda in this yeah.
5: campaign. No, no, well, that, that's very interesting that it, it, as a single issue, it absolutely hasn't. And, and uh, you know, we might talk about why it hasn't. But I, I think what has fed in is this broader sense that you may as well try to do something different, because if you keep doing the same thing, you know, it, it, it finally does go back to the Einstein thing. If you keep doing the same thing and expect different results, that's the definition of stupidity. You know, and... and I think that is having a big effect on this election, that there's a lot of people now who who are more willing to take a risk. And and Sinn Féin, so far, is the beneficiary of that. I I, I think what Pat was saying earlier, though, is still very important. This is still to play out, right? So so maybe, you know, there's still the last couple of days when people say, oh, you know, I was thinking about taking that risk, but maybe I won't. Um, So it's still going to be very interesting. Maybe some of the people who are interested in change might decide actually, I could vote for change. There's a lot of other options. You know, there's Labour, there's Social Democrats, there's Greens, there's other, other non-Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael options that, that I might take. So we don't know how this is all going to play out, but, but I think in general, that's what's shaped the way this campaign has gone. So that was part of our
0: discussion last night in Trinity. We don't have time to put the whole thing up in this podcast for you, but subscribers enjoyed it for almost two hours. So remember that uh, maybe you might want to take advantage of that yourself and sign up to the Irish Times as a subscriber. Uh, Of course, our subscribers are also a highly intelligent bunch of people, so it isn't any surprise that they had some good questions themselves.
3: Um, Hi, Uh, my question
2: is just about the news today that the election in TIP might actually go ahead because the Attorney-General has um, seemed to think that they can just... Uh, declare laws
3: unconstitutional Um, and that kind of like comes on top of like potentially dubious advice on like rent freezes and like quite politically convenient advice Um, so just kind of like do you think we have a problem in this country with like the attorney general and stuff and or does anyone care I suppose because I think like one of my lecturers wrote a thing about um, him being like a one-man supreme court um, and it definitely seems to be getting out of control but
2: like Am I the only one who cares? I don't know.
0: It's a very peculiar story. Is it? who'd like to who, who's who's informed enough to take it? I suppose is the first question in terms of the legal points. Well, involved. Just
2: on the the, the rent uh, freeze issue, that was more that. Um, the Fianna Fáil advice was that a permanent rent freeze was unconstitutional, but what the other parties are actually proposing is a temporary rent freeze. So when they're arguing about it being constitutional or not constitutional, mm. that's actually what they're arguing about: temporary or permanent. And and on the temporary thing, honestly, I don't know what's going on there. It, it, I, I, I think I think part of it is because the uh, under the law you have to. Um, hold an election within 30 days of the doll being mm-hmm. dissolved yes, but then there's another part of the law which says that I think if uh, if unfortunately a candidate passes away um, that there has to be the ballot has to be reopened in a period of seven days and they, they seem to kind of conflict with each other a little bit and I kind of wonder why did nobody ever think so about
5: that's this? a pretty shoddy piece of legislation it looks it's, like. it's it's extremely shoddy and it draws attention to I, I think by the way your, your broad point is absolutely right about the way we've allowed the attorney general to, to become as you say a one person supreme court you know and politicians just hide behind it they just say oh sorry we'd love to do that but the attorney general says no you can't who's accountable i mean there's nobody accountable there i mean the, the attorney generals i'm sure give honest legal advice but but we all know that you ask 15 lawyers about something you'll get 15 different pieces of honest legal advice which, which is bills. which is better <laughs> um uh, yeah uh, but but the 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 point about the Tipperary thing, I think, it draws attention to one of the absolutely disgraceful things that's going on right now with this election, which is the shambolic nature of electoral organisation. We've, we've been saying for 30 years, and everybody's been agreeing, that it's a disgrace that we have no independent electoral commission. You know, to actually look at electoral law, to implement electoral law, to make these decisions, uh, to be completely independent of the system, to draw up... Um, The boundaries, you know, to actually run the entire system in a completely independent, transparent, open way. And here we are going into yet another election without it. There was no reason at all why the government couldn't have delayed itself for a couple of weeks and and got that piece of legislation done. Um, Things like postal voting. I have to be in England on Saturday, so I had to apply for a postal vote. I've never done it before. I don't know if people know uh, do you know how long you've got to apply for a postal vote? Two days from the calling of an election. <laughs> you know? So most people who might want to have a postal vote, you know, by the time they actually realize, oh, the election's been called, I better get organized, you said, no, sorry, it's too late. You know, that just basic stuff around that way, the, the register is drawn up, the way the whole thing is run is, is absolutely shambolic, and this is another example of it. And just finally, it's incredibly naive in the period of electoral interference from foreign powers and the Cambridge Analytic, all that stuff going on. We, we have no system really for for guarding the integrity of our elections it,
3: just, just very briefly, I agree one hundred percent on the need for an electoral uh, commission and uh, and especially in the days of foreign interference as, uh, as you say, and the election in Tipperary is very close to my own heart, um, uh, being a lucky native of that uh, of that county, and Jane gave an admirable summary of it, but I think that the actually the, the, the piece of legislation that is causing the trouble. Tells us something important about the way we have structured our elections. Because the idea behind it was if the candidate dies, that the big parties might lose that, they might lose that seat. And therefore the whole thing had to be suspended while they found a relative. I and mean, this isn't actually in the legislation now, but but, <laughs> but this is what they mean. While they found a relative a, 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 a son or a daughter, preferably or the stupid brother who always had to stay at home on the farm, to run in his place because otherwise potentially a seat would be lost and therefore the election couldn't go ahead if, uh, if one of our seats was at risk of losing. So it's, it's, it's a small and kind of peculiar thing
0: but it tells us a lot. This is the kind of insight into Irish democracy that we pay for, which are, which are Irish Times subscriptions. Um, so we, we had somebody in the middle, did you manage to get a mic?
6: Hello. Um. I have a question about how little the process of governance seems to have come up. I, I'm talking about the, the substance of health, housing, uh, all that terribly important, but we very little concern about the way the governance process runs. For instance, I'm thinking of bills. I've only been shocked to hear there are 50 bills unimplemented. I mean, I'm not going back to the Shannon Reform Bill. I'm just talking about more recently. Um, The money messaging, how that's been used or not used. The um, bills that were, motions, bills that were passed across by all parties. Nothing's been done. I'm thinking of the anti-eviction bill about a year and a half, two Christmases ago. Um, A couple of bills. The Green Party bought in, uh, waste reduction. I mean, surely we care. Do we not care about the process of governments, that it's open, accountable and transparent? I'm waiting about over a year and a half to get a reply from a Fine Gael representative about an issue. I've written emails, I've gone up to the office. Where's accountability? Do we not care?
0: Would anybody like to take that who's not in our path?
6: Uh, you've a really good point about the
2: bills. Um, it used to be that if an opposition bill or if a private member's bill got through, that it would be front-page news and it would be a shock defeat for the government. Now it's just it's barely even mentioned, you know. So the, the way that the doll does its business, part of it has become kind of irrelevant. And that could be because of the confidence in supply and it could be because of the way uh, politics has gone generally. But I, I do agree with you that there there has been a shift away from that kind of... I don't know. Like it's almost like people don't take it as seriously anymore, you know. Um, so I would, I would agree with you on that point. And as regards contacting your, your TD, um, just do what I do. Just turn up at their door. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: I'm sorry, the other person yeah, here. Yeah, um, it's Ethan, and uh, thanks very much for the discussion. It's been fantastic altogether. Um, I just, uh, n- you know, noticed from the opinion polls and everything, it seems that the independent candidates aren't going to do as well this time round, which I welcome because I think you know people should vote for political parties because they're the ones who can bring about change. But do you think is that going to be, you know, only for this election? Is that a one election phenomena, or is that more of a general trend? That might be one for you, Jennifer.
4: Yeah. yeah. Well, uh, that's a conversation I've been having um, on my roadshow. And um, I think a lot of people, I, Pat probably has the, the, the actual um, the figures for support for independence on the top of, off the top of his head. Uh, is it, was it 18? Well, if I don't, I'll
3: make them up. Yeah. <laughs> They're as follows. Actually, the independents and others were uh, 20%, 20% in the last yeah. poll. Which,
4: which is it, it's not bad. It's not bad. It's it's reasonably... Which well, is
3: much higher than, than yeah. you would expect in, in other countries, obviously, it's the peculiarities of our system. But by comparison, in the last general election, they got 30%. So... You're right, there yeah. probably will be fewer in the next time. I
4: think it's a product of probably, you know, the experience that we've seen over the last couple of years. The, the the conversation that I would have with people, they would say, well, you know, I've kind of tended to vote for an independent in the past, but really I've lost faith in their ability to get stuff done. And I think that's what it is. You know, I think we've seen all over the country, there are examples of independents who went in, uh, swept in on a wave of ambition and promise and didn't manage to deliver, possibly through no fault of their own, um, so I think that's part of the sort of the ground shift that we're seeing is a move away from, from independence. I also think, you know, I was talking to Pat about this earlier on today, there's still quite a high proportion of undecideds. So anything could happen between now and Saturday still. It's 17%, was that what we came to in the end? 17% of people are undecided. And I know that polling statistics would traditionally show that the undecideds tend not to vote. Um, I'm not sure that's going to happen this time because the undecideds who I've met do intend to vote and are very clear that they intend to vote and they're genuinely undecided as in I'm still weighing everything up and I'm thinking deeply about it but there's no way I'm not voting. So um, you know, any of the things that we've seen so far in, in the in the polls are still to play for. But I think the it, specifically on the independence, I think it's just a product of seeing that people voted for independence, but their faith in them and, and didn't they didn't really deliver. I, I also think that the independent brand was damaged by the independent
1: alliance's role in government, and you know there were some very honourable independents, uh, people like Maureen O'Sullivan, who's not going to contest again in Dublin, and. Thomas Pringle and Donegal, who is going to contest again, but will face a real, real challenge, you know. So uh, I I, I, have mixed feelings, really, about independence, I suppose. I mean, I, I really am a huge fan of PRS-TV. Um, us in Malta all the way with PRS-TV. <laughs> I think it's a very, very positive Their political system.
0: system's in great shape as well. Oh,
1: I know. But, I, you know, I really genuinely believe it has... It has protected us from the worst that we've seen in our neighbours uh, in Britain. You know, I think we're a very small, small little island, you know, 4.8 million people. I think this system allows us uh, not to get too divided and it, it allows us... It just lets us get on with each other, which
0: which we have to do. Right. Um, anybody else here at all? Um, sorry, there's somebody up at the back there, is
5: there? Um, just uh, two questions. First question is... Um, if Leo Wrecker, uh loses, and Finnegan loses about five or six seats, do you think there'll be an immediate uh, leadership challenge to him? And second question is, will we see the two Healy Rays back
4: in the Dáil?
0: <laughs> 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 it's, it's a, unfortunately, our colleague Michael O'Regan has retired lately because I know he has very strong views on, on that kind of thing. Uh, we'll put this to each of the poll cores. One, one can take each one.
2: What was the first question again?
0: The first question was a challenge oh, to the ever yes, Kerr.
2: Uh, yes, I think so. Um, I think that Simon Coveney showed that he had the support of the grass of the grassroots membership of the party. Um, and I looked back actually on the hustings a while ago to look at, you know, when we can see Finagale going down in the polls to see, you know, go back to where it all began for the two men. And they did actually paint a completely different picture for the vision that they had for the party hmm. at the time. Simon Coveney was talking about being more empathetic and going back to those roots, those kind of social roots. And Leo Varadkar was kind of all about getting those seats and, and you know, sweeping the boards and stuff. And um, I know that a lot of people in Finnegale are looking back a little bit wistfully and wondering to themselves, what could have been if it was Simon Coveney? If they're thinking that now imagine what it's going to be like if they suffer a massive loss and yes I think both Healy Rays will, will get in
0: yeah in Russia there was a very bad TG Car poll for the Healy Rays wasn't there a few days ago Pat
3: uh, it was published, published last night which showed Michael um, Healy Ray was likely to retain his seat but that Danny was in trouble which led me to suspect that the whole thing had been invented by Danny who now
6: <laughs>
3: po- he's possibly singing the opinion polls to a tune he's playing on the squeeze box as well uh, <laughs> <laughs> it is my prediction, also like Jennifer, that uh, that the that both Healy Rays uh, that at least two Healy Rays will be uh, in in the Healy next year. Healy Rays deal. are
4: an entire uh, political party in that part yeah. of the country. When I go down there, I ask people, "How are you voting? I'm voting Healy Ray." <laughs> <laughs> They're a whole party.
3: Number one, two, three. Um, uh, but on, on the subject of uh, of whether Leaverado will face uh, a heave um, under Fine Gael rules, there uh, there must be. Uh, Leadership nominations must be opened if the party is not in government after a general election. Now, whether Simon Coveney would challenge him straight away if they went into opposition, I, I, I don't know. But I did mark the time and the date when yesterday I had my first conversation with the Fine Gael minister who was probing the ground on this, uh, on this subject. So, um, I mean...
5: What do you think of Michael Noonan hopping the ball about Pascal? Uh,
3: I think further evidence that the conversation is all... Right. I mean, you've got to love politicians. I mean, the election hasn't happened. The guy hasn't lost the election yet. <laughs> and already the, guy, the knives are being sharpening uh, <laughs> behind him. But yet that conversation is certainly on. I think we can say with some confidence, Jen, that the leadership ambitions of Simon Coveney, who, as Jen suggests ran on a uh, platform, it ran against Leo Veradker with a platform of returning Fine Gael to its just society roots, a far more social democratic approach. When Leo Veradker was talking about, I will look after the people who get up early in the morning, I will cut your, uh, I will cut your taxes, and uh, you wouldn't have to be um, a political genius to figure out which approach might have worked better in this election. Mary, you'd miss Leo Varadkar
0: though, wouldn't you?
1: I think it's striking how little we've talked about Leo Radker tonight and I was really taken by Jen's point when you were saying that on your travels, nobody was really being too critical of him. You know, I think it's astonishing really how quickly the sheen has gone off for Radker and I think, would you say Pat, it's a safe bet that nobody in this room voted for him to be Taoiseach? Unless there's any Gael councillors TDs or maybe members of
3: come well, in or, oh, we'll let them okay yeah. okay
1: <laughs> there's always one <laughs> <laughs> we can,
2: we can,
3: yeah. <laughs> We'd ask them to put their hands up or their arses out the window. One oh or the gosh. other.
2: <laughs> actually, Hugh, just on that point about Leverk, yeah. i followed him around a couple of different counties. I was in Longford and Offaly with him, and he actually does have a celebrity factor. I was, sure. I, I kind of walked around behind him a little bit and listened to what people around me are saying. People are saying, "Oh my God, he's so tall." And another person said, he walks so fast. Another one's like, that's how he keeps his figure. You know, yeah. that, like, that's what they're talking People are looking at him going, you're so handsome. You know, when they meet him, like they do, they are impressed by him. And um, he got a little bit of jip, but not much, to be honest.
5: It's, it's very striking if you're in, I've been in England a lot uh, over the last year and and with the Brexit stuff and all that. And it's very interesting. I mean, it's very hard to explain to people in England why Leo Varadkar is not a shoe-in for re-election. You know, the mm. the, the view from there is you know, he's he's witty. he's gay, he's, you know, a person of colour, he's, he's the 21st century, he's been brilliant on Brexit, and the Irish economy's booming. W- what? You know, so he's not going to get re-elected? Like, people actually genuinely can't understand it. And you can kind of see, if you were Leo Varadkar, how that view might have got into your own head, where you actually think, <laughs> you know, I have to be a shoe in look, look at me, it's all, it all has to be good. And, I genuinely think the fact that they've been spending so much time on Brexit, so much time in a sort of international world has rubbed off in terms of missing the the fact that actually it's not that people dislike him. It's just that they care much more about issues which are not Brexit or the economy yeah. or, his focus, you know, his focus Leo being, being Leo. His focus to be elsewhere,
1: yeah. hasn't it? You know, he's, he's been on Twitter talking about writing articles for La Republica. He appeared on the Andrew Marr show on Sunday. That's all very well. But, you know, <laughs> as... Uh, <laughs> I'm sure those were in the diary, but, you know, Simon Coveney, as you said, he, he talked about fighting for the heart and soul, the soul of Fine Gael. And really, that's where Leo Varadkar needs to be right now and practically the eve of the poll. You
3: won't win many votes in Knocknagoshal going on Andrew Marr, I'll tell you that.
4: <laughs> uh, it's, not, it's not Leo, I think, who represents everything that's wrong um, with the current government. If you're in rural Ireland, it's Shane Ross. Shane Ross really? is to rural Ireland, as the Healy Rays are here. They hate him. right? Absolutely hate him. Well, it's the it's, one thing they have in common with the Greens, then, isn't it? Take it? about 15 seconds in certain parts of rural Ireland for Shane Ross to come up. Okay. A conversation that has nothing to do with Shane Ross.
0: We have now come to the point which you all love when I ask you for predictions. Um, it does seem quite fluid to me. I mean, the way the polls have been bouncing around, shy Finegalers, Fianna Fáil's ability to kind of deliver a bit more on the day, at the, you know, at the ballot box. Um, what? <laughs> Mary, don't make faces like that. <laughs> Do you have any idea at all what the hell is going to happen on Sunday and Monday?
1: I think a lot of people have made complete eejits of themselves in the past by making predictions about poll seats. About seats that, uh, sorry, oh, seats that I'll end I'll, up. I, I can tell you our colleague, Harry McGee's, Harry if you like.
3: Can we refer you to Harry's predictions? Yes, yeah. it's all up Harry's there on iristimes.com. Harry,
1: Harry's, I wouldn't agree with them all now. He has no. Fianna Fáil 53, Fine Gael 38, Sinn Féin 28. Eyebrows up. <laughs> Labour 8, Greens 14.
0: Greens 14 uh-huh. seems very high.
1: Sock Dems 3, uh, Solidarity People Before Profit 2. And others, 14.
0: I should also point out that if you do read Harry's article, it it contains an error. He thinks that Lyndon Baines Johnson said that the people have spoken the bastards. It wasn't him.
6: (laughs) That (laughs) might not be the only
0: error in it, by the looks of things. (laughs) Whoa,
3: are we putting some insight into into the cruel,
5: vicious world of political correspondence in the Irish (laughs) Times? The rivalries, the backstabbing. This is why they can write about politics so well, because they they do it themselves. (laughs) So, Pat. It's striking, though, isn't it, In just on those numbers, that if, if Harry's right, of course, the magic number being 80, Fianna Fáil, the Greens, Social Democrats and Labour would have exactly 80. <laughs> isn't that right? So, 79, I think, maybe. But sure. I think it's exactly 80 on his numbers. Right, I'm sure your maths is better. The, the way he's updated them anyway, so he keeps, <laughs> keeps changing. <them. laughs> but, you know, that, that's just interesting. That. Would that be your preferred outcome? Um, my, my preferred outcome would be a revolutionary socialist government, your preferred you know, rea- but, but your, um, you know... Your preferred I'm, realistic outcome. I'm sort of getting old, you know, <laughs> and my, 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 my faith in living long enough to see it is, 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 um, is getting um, worse and worse. Um, uh, if I had to, you know, the least unlikely outcome is probably Michael Martin as Taoiseach with some kind of grand coalition that does not include Fine Gael. But even then, the numbers are very dodgy, but... It, 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 this is where all those kind of last seats in the, you know, that, this is where that granular stuff is going to really matter. Like, one of the things that, for instance, we, we, we have no idea about for, just to take one simple example, right, is we're going to have something we've never had much in Irish politics before, in, in the, the, the mechanisms, which is Sinn Féin surpluses being distributed. Hmm. Oh, they'll so have way too many votes. It'll be huge. What one like, of their problems. Just take Dublin, problem. Dublin Central, just, just across the, the, the river, Mary Lou MacDonald's constituency, one candidate. I mean, Mary Lou Macdonald's going to get two quotas, you know, or close enough to it. Who, who, where do those go? I mean, it, it could elect Social Democrat, it could elect Labour, it could elect Green. We, we, we really have no idea. So it, h- how those numbers actually work out, but if you're going to say what's the least unlikely outcome, it's probably Micheál Martin with some kind of rainbow coalition around him. Here's a thought, Pat. Could Mary Lou Macdonald's surplus
0: lose Pascal Donahue's seat? I actually talked to somebody uh, in
3: Fine Gael about this uh, this evening. The feeling is that Pascal will probably be alright. He is not safe, no more than any Fine Gaeler is feeling that they're, uh, that they're safe at the moment. And one of the Things that one of the dynamics that will compound the party's difficulties is that discipline is kind of effectively broken down in the constituencies now, so the strong will eat the weak um, uh, right, right across metaphorically across it, the, it, it, it's quite except picture, in Meath think where, it. uh, where it's literally um, uh, but um, uh, so I, I, yeah, I, I would be very surprised, I put it this way if Pascal Donoghue li- uh, loses his seat then Fine Gael will have uh, such a bad day that he wouldn't want to have been leader of the
0: party anyway. So... Mm. Um, there was this kind of ominous kind of noise came out of your microphone <laughs> when you said that.
3: Is, that. is Pascal here? Is he... <laughs>
0: And that is it from this special live podcast. Thanks to our producer, Declan Conlon, and very special thanks to Claire Luby and to Tanya Meehan for organising that event last night. If you're a subscriber, do keep an eye out for more good stuff coming your way. And if you're not, why not remedy that oversight by heading over straight away to irishtimes.com slash subscribe, where you can get all the Irish Times' digital journalism for just one euro for the first month. Remember, you can find us on all the usual podcast platforms and also at irishtimes.com slash podcasts. You can mail us at politicspodcast at irishtimes.com or you can find most of us on Twitter. Keep an eye on your feeds for our Election Daily podcast later and over the weekend and into next week the Irish Times print edition and irishtimes.com will be bringing you all the results and all the news from around the country on the election of the 33rd Doyle.
4: So thanks for listening and we'll talk to you again very soon.